Welcome and thanks for joining us. My name is Sam Anwar Sesha, Director of the Museum of Colour and your host for this series, My Words Donations. As part of the My Words exhibition at the Museum of Colour, we have invited a number of poets to donate objects to our digital collection. These are items that have a real significance to them and their creative journeys. This series is a chance to hear the stories behind those donations. And coming up, we'll be talking with Will Harris. Hi, my name is Will Harris. I'm a writer, sometimes editor, sometimes workshop facilitator, and I work in care homes in Tower Hamlets as an activity worker. And I also have a part-time job at UEA, where we're taking in an archive of contemporary poets. Well, how would you describe your work, your poetry, your writing? I would say I I only have a very annoying answer to this. There's this quote that some people, sometimes people give about poetry, like if I if I knew where poetry comes from, I'd go there. Whereas I've always felt the opposite. If I knew where poetry comes from, I would never go there. I would like build a reinforced lead wall around it. And so I find the question of what my poetry is about very difficult to answer because I try and know as little about it when I enter the kind of mode of trying to write. (laughs) Okay, so when did you first know yourself to be in this space that you may or may not have wanted to be in? So when did you know yourself to be a poet? Yeah, I guess the answer to that, which follows on, is that I don't, I don't know. But I feel like that's common to most most poets I talk to. There's an uncertainty about what it means to write poetry because the act of writing poetry takes up relatively little time. So in that gap, it's filled by all the anxiety around what it means, the gap around the writing. And ultimately, I don't think it's a particularly important question. I mean, there are important questions to do with labour and valuing labour. I like that poets like Wong Mei refer to themselves as cultural workers, which feels like a, a legitimate term, as distinct almost from the writing of poetry, because there's so much involved in the work, which is separate from that. But it's never felt important to me to call myself a poet. Though when I started writing when I was 15, I thought I was a poet, because I was like, I'm writing poetry, this is amazing. I'm, you know, and once you do it, you've done it. It's like not like writing a novel or a screenplay or, a, you know, making a film. You can write a poem in two minutes and call yourself a poet. That was always the most exciting thing about it. When you say you want to know as little as possible, can you tell me a little bit more what you mean by that? And how does that maybe affect your process? I, I think particularly as a, a non-white writer there are lots of large abstractions that it can feel like i'm writing into or there's a pressure to to write in response to that can be very freezing in terms of the creative process and and the process for me is essentially one of free association like the reason i connect with poetry is because the intense focus on sound patterns and form unlock something in my mind that wouldn't be uh, accessible any other way and I think it's hard to to keep hold of that 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 freedom so yeah I guess what I mean is I try not to be too aware or to leave space for the self 
self-analysis and self-scrutiny for later. And also maybe to keep that as a slightly private process, because it's really difficult to hold on to that relationship to yourself and to what you're trying to do. And I think if you share too much or too soon or in the wrong way, you can actually lose a vital connection to something. So 15-year-old you was excited because you wrote a poem and you were a poet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess I tried lots of other forms of writing. I really wanted to write a play, but a play was just really difficult. And I wasn't excited enough to follow it through. But a poem was just was easy and intuitive and fun. This wonderful term that you said Wong May uses, cultural worker, does that pull together all the parts of the different things that you do that you've described? Mm, that's a good question. I'm not not entirely sure it does. So in my work in, in care homes, that feels completely separate to what I do. I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm a cultural worker there. I mean, I think I am just an, an activity worker. I'm organizing and providing activities for people in extra sheltered accommodation. And I almost wouldn't want to subsume that under any other thing I do, because that would maybe diminish it. Um, or change my relationship to it. I should say I'm not entirely convinced or sure about this term cultural worker and its validity. I think it feels linked to wider questions about the labor time of artists and how we account for it. And I think something is definitely gained in using this this term cultural worker, which just kind of brings them into the a more conventional workforce under capitalism but there's something lost as well because obviously poetry can also feel like a rejection of the utilitarian constraints of capitalism where every hour has to be accounted for and goes towards your your income and the amount of money you make and the amount of value you bring uh and yeah i don't really i don't really have an answer exactly I think it's attention that is maybe important to maintain. I think for not having an answer, that's a really good answer. Um, okay, so we asked you to donate two objects to the Museum of Colour. But before we get on to your objects, I am interested to know about your relationship with museums, how you feel about them and what it feels like to be in one. I guess I associate museums with my childhood. I don't feel like I have an adult relationship to them, really. If I'm honest, I never really think to go to a museum if I have a day off. I'm not like, I'm just going to, yeah, pop down to the, the science museum. But I grew up in um, in West London, kind of in between Shepherd's Bush and Hammersmith. So my dad would often drive me down to, you know, on, on the holidays, on his scooter, he'd like take me down. And I have a lot of good memories around it's particularly actually I did particularly like the science museum I loved the darkness of it the way that this that, that they had that amazing collection of stones the way they were lit well that was kind of magical and also the way they recreated certain things I don't know if they still have it there was a, a shop in Japan during an earthquake and you could stand in there and the ground would shake and stuff would slightly rattle on the tills that was pretty cool but I so I wasn't really engaging with the museum as an institution I was engaging with it as a series of sensory experiences and I think as I got older and I started to think about well I guess particularly with museums as cultural institutions like the British Museum I started to think about where those objects came from and what the placement of those objects next to each other meant 
they became a lot more distasteful to me. In my first book, I've got a few poems around the British Museum, and in particular, what they call the Enlightenment Gallery, which is room one, like the one that is closest to what the British Museum would have looked like when it was founded. And it's just a collection of loot from the 18th century. And the thing that I find most violent about it is the way objects are taken out of context and kind of violently yoked together in this new adjacency. And the terms of the relationship are defined entirely by power, by imperial power. So there's a a Wayang mask from Indonesia, from Java, which is next to a mummified head from Egypt. And there's something like something so wrong about that placement, which I feel like represents a lot of what, what is troubling about the museum. The idea that you can just take these things and arrange them for the kind of the pleasure of the viewing eye. I did do a trip recently with some care home residents to the British Museum, and they do these outreach things now where they have like, they try and recontextualize the objects by getting members of the community in to do like a dance, do a show. And even that, that, that to me is still like so troubling because the museum is such a sterile environment. It's like bringing, you know, it's like a lab and you can have, you can't have a party in a lab. But then, but then I guess I, I, my, my feelings towards museums aren't entirely negative. I feel like they, there are ways they could be done differently, but maybe they shouldn't, they shouldn't be museums. Maybe there should be community centers. Maybe, you know, new work should be commissioned in that engages with old work. And yeah, they can be centers of, creation rather than preservation. Interesting. I do know that there have been some museums who have talked about repurposing the space that they inhabit. So it's it's a very interesting thought. And given that thought, how does it feel to know that you are going to be in one? Because yes, we do not have the square footage of a British museum or indeed a corner shop. We have digital space only, but you are in this digital museum. How does it feel to be in a museum? I'm not sure I really have thought about that before. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that before you you asked me. I think in trying to write, there is a desire to preserve and pass on what what you've you've felt and seen. And I feel excited by this project. I like the idea that it doesn't need to take up a physical space, that it can take up this virtual space, which means that people can choose whether or not to engage with it. And I'm excited about the other writers who are part of it, about the idea of their voices being preserved and and the subversion of the museum, about what gets chosen, what gets remembered. And the new, I guess, the new conversations that will come out of this, that's, that's really a great thing. I'm always ambivalent about my own role in that stuff, but I'm happy to be part of it. I don't know. I have, I, like I said earlier, my, I feel a lot of a lot of doubt around my work, and so it's kind of strange the idea. I mean, I, I, I get, I have so many mixed feelings about publishing itself. You know, every time I publish, I'm just anything in any form. I'm just plunged into this place of extreme self-doubt about why I do it. And so this, in in a way, this is a more extreme version of that. But I still think it's healthy. I think putting things out there, it, it, it creates uh, something solid that other people can respond to. I think that's the reason for, for publishing, for putting on exhibitions, making museums in different forms. Yeah, I mean, definitely giving people something to respond to. But I suppose also 
because I think what you're saying and about that doubt, I think that the D word is common with artists across art forms. But I think hearing that from the artists themselves, I think that's a useful thing. So let's talk about the donations. Tell us about your first donation. What does it mean to you and why do you want to share it? So my first donation is a little turtle in a box with a tiny shell next to it. And I can't actually remember where I got it, where I got it exactly. I know I got it in Beijing when I was there with my mum in the 90s when I was very small. I was about four and my mum, she finished school early, but she did a degree in Chinese in Mandarin as a mature student at the University of Westminster. And for her year abroad, she took me with her and I went to Peking University and lived in her dorm. We shared the same bed and there were two other dorm mates there as well. And yeah, so my earliest memories are of actually speaking Mandarin, going to a, a nursery there and walking around the campus because it was gated. So it was pretty safe. I could walk around there and I got this turtle. And I just remember I, I got a few little objects, like an old coin one of the classic ones with the square hole in the middle and some medicine balls but this this turtle i really still treasure because every time i look at it it does this thing which you can't tell in a still image where if you when you pick it up it its little legs move like it's crawling forward and so every time i move it it's like i'm four years old again it is it is delightful so thank you for sharing that and those amazing memories of um, being with your mom on that university campus so okay well tell us about your second object my second object is a photograph photographs are pretty important to me and i guess i guess they're important to everyone but i think particularly because so much of my family is scattered and particularly in in indonesia photographs when I was young and since then I've always been a way of feeling close to them and I often try and carry a few photographs with me and this one is of me and my mum and my grandma who I called Matt. Matt is um, the kind of padang term for uh, for grandma. So my mum grew up in West Sumatra where I uh, speaking a dialect of Indonesian uh, called, called padang and in that photo we are actually back in, in West Sumatra I think in either in Riau, which is where my mum grew up, or in West Sumatra itself, where my um, grandma grew up, probably visiting the place where my granddad's ashes were scattered. And there's something about the layout of the photograph with my grandma in the distance and slightly in shadow and my my mum in in front. I mean, I I suppose it has a, a slightly Star Warsy quality to it. You know, the the idea of the was it the force ghosts who are still who are still there? Like my grandma Matt is a kind of force ghost behind my mum, and my mum in turn is behind me. And I don't have very many images like that of lineage, and it's just it's just nice to carry with me that reminder that there are these people behind me who I carry with me and who carry me. It's beautiful. Thank you. So to your last donation. And so my last donation is the most recent one, and it's a brick that my dad found by the side of the Thames. He went through this phase after he retired where he'd walk along the Thames and look for things that had washed up in the low tide. 
I think it's called mudlarking, though he definitely wouldn't have called it mudlarking. He was very much just a guy with a Tesco bag walking along the Thames, picking up random things. And he found this this brick which said say on it. And really unbelievably, he also he found another brick which also said say on it a few weeks later. And he put them both onto these little plinths, which he made himself. So he was an antiques dealer. He was always good with his hands and fixing things and making things. And he put these little broken bricks onto a plinth and gave them to me and my partner. And particularly at the time he gave them, it felt quite resonant because he'd been seriously ill. And we've always had a semi-verbal relationship like most Englishman of his generation is not very good at communicating or verbalizing things. So for him to give me this brick, which just said say on it, felt like he was really reaching towards something. And then I ended up writing a poem about it and about my dad, which I think is one of the first poems I wrote where I really felt like I was speaking in my own voice, saying things, I guess. Yeah, I hear you. That's really touching. Do you want to just actually describe what it looks like? Yeah, it's a grey brick on which the letters, capital letters S-A-Y, are engraved and it's mounted on a little wooden plinth. Brilliant. Thank you, Will. So the last donation that you're going to do is a poem. And I'm going to just ask you which poem you'd like to share with us and yeah, why you'd like to share it. So I'm going to share a poem from my first book, Rendang. And I think it's a poem I wrote so that I would have something to carry around in my head and say to myself as almost a spell if I was feeling anxious or overwhelmed. So it feels like an appropriate thing to try and pass on. I don't know if it'll work for other people. It's called... Budlia not Buddha. Budlia not Buddha, chanting in bloom. My soul before I knowed it, chanting too. I ran down to the tube, and from Gray's Inn Road to Farringdon to the Golden Lane estate, Budlia not Buddha, chanting in bloom. I went not caring where I went, how late it was or why, but barred at every turn I took and every church gate chained. Budlia not Buddha chanting in bloom. Grey it grew, and far from home until I had to stop. My bundling found me on a bus, and eyes closed, there I cried, waiting for the sky to gape, and let me crawl inside. Budlia, not Buddha, chanting in bloom. Budlia, not Buddha, budling on my tomb. Thank you to Will Harris for being part of our exhibition and donating to the Museum of Colour. To view the donations photographed by Sharon Wallace and the portraits by Derek Akembo, head to www.museumofcolour.org.uk where you can explore the rest of the My Words exhibition and discover our growing digital collection. My Words Donations is presented by me, Samanwar Sesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms where you can also listen to our previous project, Respect Duke. The music you have heard in this series is by the fabulous Randolph Matthews. 
You can listen to more of his work at www.randolphmatthews.com. My Words is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Arts Council England and the Foyle Foundation. Museum of Colour is incubated at People's Palace Projects, based at Queen Mary University, London. Thank you for listening. <laughs>